Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny welcomes back beloved doctor, Dr. Bernie Siegel, who's the author of the groundbreaking classic, Love, Medicine, and Miracles. And today they'll be chatting about his latest book, Three Men, Six Lives, a grand adventure born of Bernie's experience of his current and past lives around his deep knowledge of the power of enduring love. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle, as well as 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find the show on iTunes and Podcast One. And if you'd like to connect with me or find out more about my coaching practice, you can always go to my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. Um, so, Benny, we'll just do a quick check-in because I know I want to jump right into our fabulous guest today um, and our discussion around his latest book. But quickly, Benny, how are things up in Seattle? Smoky. <laughs> very, yeah, very smoky. Yes. Yeah, we've got that. I mean, clearly mm-hmm. we have that down here, too. Yep. I, I yep. The, Sometimes when you see pictures in the media, things are exaggerated. But I will say the one accurate picture I have seen this week were really that captures things so um really it's impressive uh, let's just say that to say the least yeah right? yeah it i mean when you see the photos of it being yeah. midday with an mm-hmm. orange eerie sky that mm-hmm. that actually really happened Ooh. all the way up here in petaluma not just over you know san francisco which is i think where the most of the pictures were coming from but yeah, yeah um yeah unprecedented wildfires what's, all across the west coast what's crazy it's just you know everyone just be very cautious and just look out for everyone and what you're doing and where you're throwing stuff away, especially, you know, I mean, I'm not a smoker, but I mean, there are tons of people do just please just be careful. And, you know, it's super dry and, you know, we're just trying to cut everything down as far as, you know, the uh, activity on being uh, reckless with those items because yeah. um, yeah. that's how stuff like this starts and it gets out of control. And, and I don't know, one of the fires, I guess I heard it was a, a gender reveal party. Yeah. And it was like, come on, people, like if you know anything like that's going to be involved, can we just like pull it back a little bit? I know you guys are all excited. New parents. I've been there. I get it. But we didn't get that crazy. (laughs) I mean, neither. Yeah. Just I mean, come on. So anyways, my my two cents throwing it in there. But no, I appreciate it, Benny. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are doing well as well as can be expected. Mm -hmm. And and we are safe, at least right now in Petaluma. We have been all the smoke is affecting us. We have been largely insulated. um, So at least to this point. So, um, yeah, well, we will leave it at that, Benny. Okay. And, um, and yeah, keep your uh, the hose on hand. Keep the water flowing as much as you can just yeah, in case, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Anywho. Yep, okay. Yep, yep. All right. <laughs> Enough <laughs> <Now> that. To, <laughs> well, we, to inject a little bit of hope into yeah. our discussion, this is the perfect guest today um, who I am so thrilled to welcome back to Sunny in Seattle, and that is Dr. Bernie Siegel. We'll just read his bio here and then welcome him back to the show. Um, Dr. Bernie Siegel, who prefers to be called Bernie, not Dr. Siegel, was born in Brooklyn, New York. He attended Colgate University and Cornell University Medical College. He holds a membership in two 
two scholastic honor societies, Phi Beta Kappa and Alpha Omega Alpha, and graduated with honors. His surgical training took place at Yale New Haven Hospital, West Haven Veterans Hospital, and the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He retired from practice as an assistant clinical professor of surgery at Yale of general and pediatric surgery in 1989 to speak to patients and their caregivers. And then in 1986, his first book, which I'm sure most of our listening audience either has on their shelf or has read it, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, was published. This event redirected his life and made him a number one New York Times bestselling author and a leading teacher of the mind-body connection. He's now a lecturer and a founder of ECAP, uh, which stands for Exceptional Cancer Patients, and he's a retired pediatric general surgeon. Um, this latest book, I mean, my gosh, Dr. Siegel is so prolific, um, of course, and he said he likes to be called Bernie, so sorry, I'm so used to calling everyone doctor. Um, so yes, uh, Bernie's latest book, which is his 19th, is Three Men, Six Lives, and he is also the co-author with his grandson, Charlie Siegel, of their book of short writings and poetry, which was just recently released, and it's called When You Realize How Perfect Everything Is. Find out more about Bernie at BernieSiegelMD.com. That's BernieSiegelMD.com, and Siegel is spelled S-I-E-G-E-L. Bernie, welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you. It's always interesting hearing my own bio. I'm sure. <laughs> about my crazy life. Um, but, uh, you know, as I became, we have five children. Um, and what was interesting, as I became a different kind of father uh, and doctor, that included shaving my head in the 1970s, which drove our kids nuts. <laughs> I mean, they were already embarrassed by their father, uh, let alone what he did. <clears throat> but um, when I would say to them, oh, I'm getting an award that was given to some really well-known people, the kids would say, oh, I guess they've lowered their standards. <laughs> and when I said, I'm going to have a book published, what are you going to call it? Out of my mind? And... <laughs> Uh, I would say they were my therapists because, yeah, and one of the symbols they had, because we all in the family with five kids, there was plenty of noise and trouble, and, you know, you'd want them to quiet down, but it wasn't getting angry and not loving them. It was not liking what they were doing. But they would say to me, if they didn't like how I was behaving, you're not in the operating room now. Mm. And and it just woke me up to, Dad, you're not in charge all the time. So, <laughs> you know, calm down. And my line, which came from a joke, was, you know why your mother and I will never get a divorce? No, why not? We Neither one of us wants the children. And then they would realize, oops, we better stop what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it sounds like, you know, in reading this latest, well, one of your latest books, because as we were talking about before we got on the air, we even right. had to clarify which book, because you've had three come out, and I think the last 12 months. So when, on this book that I read for today's show, Three Men, Six Lives, it sounds like another teacher you have had along the way were your past lives, which is not something I, I had no idea. When I read the blurb that, or the, the actually is a beautiful testimonial that Dr. Brian Weiss wrote, yeah. I didn't realize you all were at Yale together back in the 60s and you were a mentor of sorts for Dr. Weiss. So I'm just yeah. 
So well, fascinating I, to hear about that. As I was saying, I wasn't a normal surgeon. <laughs> so I remember him saying to me, I love being in the operating room with you, you know, because I did so many things that were not related to surgery. Yeah. I and mean, I played music. And everybody said, You'll, you're an explosion hazard. Because of the gases that were in the operating room, and I'm bringing in a tape recorder. And then I would talk to patients under anesthesia, and the anesthesiologist would look at me like, what are you, nuts? They're anesthetized. Hmm. But they all learned that the music made a difference about how everybody in the room felt and healed, and that patients heard me talking to them. Yep. And it, it wasn't you know, anything I did, it was the patients waking up and talking about what was happening in the operating room, what they heard, or even saying to a patient, I want your pulse to go to 84. And it would go to 84 on the monitor. And then my patients began to be called Siegel's crazy patients as an (laughs) affectionate term because they, their mind body stuff always led them to do exceptionally well versus other patients who would have side effects of treatment. I mean, this is a quote from the nurses. Your patients are a problem. What is it? They refuse pain medication after surgery. I said, did it ever occur to you they're not hurting? And they'd look at me like, you have to be nuts. You cut somebody open and they're not hurting. But they began to learn and it helped to transform the other doctors and to do what I did. Because I always said, nobody's against success. So Mm. if you did something that worked, ultimately everybody started doing it. And when I write these books, it's because I have experienced it. I want to share the truth with people. I mean, for me, I wasn't going to a psychiatrist to have a past life regression. I was on the phone with a friend. It's like you called me today, and I didn't know it was you. And I said, hey, I've got a schedule, you know, scheduled interview. And they said, yes, yes, it's us. <laughs> <laughs> but, so a friend of mine called me and said, you know, started talking. I said, wait a minute. I can't talk now. I have an interview coming up. And she said, why are you living this life? Because she knew how busy I was. And I said to her, oh, my God. She said, what's the matter? I said, I just went into a trance when you said that. And I, I saw myself with a sword in my hand, killing. Mm. And it, it was incredible. Um, to it, I always say to people, it's like watching yourself in a movie, but except it's real, um, and you're feeling it, and it's you. And after that um, experience, which is a, you know a short one of a minute or two, I was flying cross country alone. Uh, my wife stayed at home, and you know, you sit in for hours in a seat on a plane. I lapsed into a trance yeah. and saw myself as a knight, I'm sure, in Ireland. And I'll tell you what I learned from it. Uh, a lot of it's in the book. But yeah. I went to get therapy because it was so emotional. I cried for hours to kill someone. And the therapist, James Hillman, the Jungian therapist, said to me, Bernie, hear what you're saying. I said, what do you mean? He keeps saying, my Lord. I said, it's the Lord of the castle. I'm a knight. He's asking me to do 
he said, no, Bernie, it's your Lord. You need to go home and relive this. Mm. And boy, did he make me know myself. Because my whole life, faith has been an issue, let's put it that way. I don't mean faith in God, but it's why would God make a world with so many difficulties and problems and all these things going on? Uh, and how did Abraham agree with God and say, yes, I'll go and we'll take a, my son's life? Or why didn't Jesus jump off the cross to impress people? Because with my crazy you know, lack of faith, let's say, and sense of humor, I thought if I were Jesus, I would have jumped off the cross pulled all the nails and said, look, you see what I just did? Now pay attention to me and what I have to teach you. But I learned about the depth of their faith. So when I was asked by my Lord to kill the neighbor's daughter because of conflict he was having with her father, I said, why don't I kill him? No, I want you to kill her. What if I don't? I'll kill you. And I went and killed her. And who does it turn out to be when she awakens in the bedroom because I had killed her dog so he wouldn't attack me. And she heard that, woke up, because I wanted to kill her in her sleep so it wouldn't be so painful. And it was my wife in this life whose head I chopped off. And when I brought it to my Lord and said, look, you happy about this? He said, you're the problem, not me. If you had said yes to me, and I knew you had faith in me, this never would have happened. And so when I relived it, I realized once I said yes to him, he said, go and bring them here and let us solve this problem. And the solution was for his daughter to marry me, and we'd all become one family and there'd be nothing to fight over because the gift would be the land they would fight. We're fighting over would be our wedding present. And I really felt that what my wife and I did in this life was solving the problem of our past life. I don't remember how much detail is in the book uh, about all this, but I knew none of this was any coincidence, all of this happening. Um, Because from the first moment I saw my wife, we both were counselors at a camp, first grade girls and first grade boys, no coincidence. Hmm. And the first time I saw her, there was something special about her. But I have to tell you the truth, she was so pretty, I thought, you can't ask her out on a date, she's just going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like she said yes. One day, we were standing at the pool taking care of all the kids. And I said to her, it's so nice that the camp leaves the pool open at night so we can all come for a swim and cool off. And she said, are you asking me for a date? And boy, I jumped on that opportunity and said, yes, 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 sure. If you'd like to come for a swim tonight, I'll pick you up. And that started our life together. Again, another no coincidence. Um, And uh, off it went from there. So how, Bernie, did you end up integrating? Because it it sounds like to have that realization and as emotional as these past life memories were that were surfacing, did you then having a relationship with Dr. Brian Weiss, talk to him about how to integrate it? Or how did you come to make meaning of it and incorporate it into your life today? 
Well, yes, I'd read his books. I talked to him. <clears throat> you see, again, when his book came out, again, people could say, oh, he's crazy. That's a coincidence. That's something, you know, people's imagination. It can't really happen. But I knew him, and I knew it happened. Yeah. You know, that he's not making stories. And the same for me. I call what I wrote a nonfiction novel. What is fiction about it are the people. Because it was easier to create three people and not expose anybody. Uh, but the stories are not fiction. They are true stories that people lived, who I knew. But I didn't want to expose them. So that's my way of saying it. But Brian was converted by the experience of his patients. When yeah. They told him things about past lives, the names of people. I mean, as I remember it, two of his patients met in the his waiting room, <laughs> and they realized they had had a past life experience together Yeah. Um, because of things they both knew and names and different things. So, again, I always say that I only write about my experience, and I tell stories so I don't get into arguments with people, because you have no idea what it's like to talk to a room full of doctor, doctors, <laughs> and even recite a poem, which I always say the poet is looking at the world and writing about his experience, but somebody will yell at me, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true, <laughs> you see? Or I tell about a study that was done, and they say, oh, that's a poor journal. That's the lousy control group. Um, and so I became a storyteller. And then people may say, yeah, a big word was the controversial Dr. Siegel. Uh, all these magazine covers, you know, interview with the controversial Dr. Siegel. But I was telling stories that they couldn't deny because they were my patients, people I knew. Yeah. And some of them were converted by the story because they'd say, oh, I got a patient you'll be interested in. Here's the story. And that's how the walls came down and people's minds opened up. <clears throat> but again, when you got statistical, they could argue with you about the value of it or things of this sort. And let me say this too, that Doctors, Jung put it this way, the diagnosis helps the doctor, but it doesn't help the patient because there the th key thing is the story for it alone shows human background and human suffering, and only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. So mm -hmm. I was treating people as an entity, if you know what I mean, not just their body, but their life experience. And I realized what a difference it made in their healing. Yeah. I wrote articles. I sent them to medical journals. They were sent back saying, interesting, but not appropriate. <laughs> it dealt with drawings patients did, dreams, um, a whole host of things. So yeah. I sent it to a psychiatric journal or a psychiatry journal. And it came back again saying, yes, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. <laughs> That's the part that also would wake me up because, well, if they knew all this, why don't they spread the word? Why don't they talk to everybody about it, not just keep it, you know, to psychiatrists? 
because whether it's coronavirus, AIDS, cancer, anything, the psychiatrists who are treating people because it's stressful for them realize that their personalities have a great deal to do with the outcome. Yes. And that they write about, publish, etc. But the infectious disease doctor or the oncologist doesn't think about it in that way. Well, and that was I, really I, I literally learned to just say to people, what are you experiencing? See, not what's your diagnosis. What are you experiencing? That is one of the questions that I highlighted in reading this. And I, I know seeing, I, I felt like we got such a very intimate window into the workings inside your head through this book, through the characters that you presented here are the stories and one of the the doctors in the book one of the main characters dr jonathan right. um you he he treats it sounds like he treats patients the way that you do and my favorite thing was um someone walks into his office and he says i want to help you so my first question is not what's your chief complaint but what is the story you bring with you and how can I help you? And I thought, oh my gosh, that's got to be Dr. Bernie there with just how you approach patients so differently than a regular doctor office that right. I've ever been in. Yeah, it's all the people in the book are part of me as well as part of people I knew. You know, so that's why I say I created the characters. But I learned just to give you some examples so people understand. A woman was about to be admitted to the hospital for severe migraine headaches. I was in the emergency room for another reason. But I thought, if she's in pain, let me see if I can help her. So I walked into her room. I said, let me do a meditation with you to help you relieve your pain. What does your pain feel like? She said, pressure. Now, she wasn't my patient, or I would have immediately said, think about what else in your life fits that word. Mm. Um, so I said to her, all right, let's work on relieving the pressure. And I did a meditation to relieve the pressure in her life and her body, et cetera. And then I left the room um, to take care of my things. And a nurse found me about 15 minutes later and said, the pressure is her marriage. Her headache disappeared. She's going home. Huh. That impresses me, you know, to realize yeah. that happening and another that was classical was a woman who said failure when I said what's it like to have cancer failure I said how does that fit your life well my body failed I said that's not my question how does failure fit your life oh my parents committed suicide when I was a child I must have been a failure as a child hmm and that redirected her life, too. So I use it in my life. I mean, many years ago, I was having trouble with, with uh, vertigo, you know, room spinning around kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I had to keep resting and lying down and doing different things. Um, and one day I said, hey, Dumbbell, why don't you do what you tell the patients <laughs> to do? What's it like? I said, well, the world is spinning around. And then it's like talking to myself. It was, yeah, you got to take it easy. You got to slow down. You got to stop doing all the things you're doing. And I thought, oh, how helpful that was. Because I thought 
here I am traveling all, literally all over the world, lecturing, doing things. And what does my body do? Gives me a dizzy spell. What do I have to do? Lie down and take it easy. And yeah. once I did that, it straightened itself out. Yeah. 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 And real quick, I'm minding the time here. And Benny, is it okay? Actually, let me ask you, Dr. Bernie, are you okay if we forego our break so we can continue our conversation uninterrupted? Sure. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, Benny, are you okay with that? Yes, ma'am. It's your show. Okay. On it. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. So, so then my, my next question um, would be, you know, when you're talking about how we are really looking to the whole person for the story and for what this might indicate about their life. And then in terms of the treatment, one of the things that I took away from this book, and I'll just read a quote here. Um, and, and of course we're talking about, um, just for anyone joining us a little bit late to the show, um, I'm here joined by Dr. Bernie Siegel, his latest book, three men, six lives, um, talks about what Dr. Siegel has learned from both his current and his past life experiences. So one of the things, I'll just read this quote here. You write that until love is considered an integral part of our therapeutic regimen, we are not treating our patients properly. Drugs cannot replace love. Love acts through us. It sees others as individuals to love rather than to be loved by them. Can you speak a little bit about the power of love as the ultimate healer? Yeah, it's, it's something, again, that came into my life. I mean, I've seen it, I have to share, that my wife died two and a half years ago. <clears throat> Her birthday was this week, 9-9. And if we have time, I'll tell you some mystical things about that number. after. She oh, died. I want that, please, yes. We All want right. the mystical stories today. <laughs> but I learned, I mean, she and I loved each other. And I realized we were like one person because of our love. We didn't need anything. If, but I mean by that, it woke me up sitting in the kitchen with her at night. And I realized we're always just sitting here together. We're not saying, let's go on vacation. Let's take a trip. Let's go to the movies. Let's go out. We didn't need anything because we had each other. Yeah. And again, how much your mind and body react. After she died, what organ in my body do you think went nuts? Your heart. Yeah. The heart rhythm mm. went crazy. Mm. And I mentioned she was born on 9-9. I went to the emergency room. I walk in, and they said, put him in room 9. Mm. From that moment on, everything in the hospital came out to 9. My room <laughs> numbers, uh, my wristband, my identification number every time I go back to the hospital is... Eight, which is a new beginning number, then 996633. So it was like, well, my wife is here with me, watching over me, obviously. Yeah. And those are the mystical things that happen that open my mind, because I know they're real, they're true. Even if you said to me, how do you explain it? Um, or how do I explain we were married on the 11th? I have a pocket full of dime and pennies that I found in all kinds of crazy, bizarre places. And I know it was my wife saying hello. And here, here we am. are having a show today on nine eleven. <laughs> yes. No coincidences. 
See, that was a statement Elizabeth Kubler-Ross used to say to me when I was going to her for therapy, too. Boroni, there are no coincidences. (laughs) And again, I thought, what is she talking about? But the way Jung put it, I understood better. She said, the future is unconsciously prepared long in advance and therefore can be guessed by clairvoyance. So your fortune tellers are reading your future. Yeah. And I've had a patient uh, who is still my friend who said, oh, I've learned you're not a normal doctor, so I brought a message for you. She brought me messages from dead patients. Oh. And when I talked to their families, they always said, yes, yes, that's what he said. That's what, because she would give me a name. And I might as well tell you, when my wife died, I thought, let's see if this is real. Will I get a yeah. phone call? Well, Sunday morning, the phone rings, and it's Monica. Bernie, Bobby's fine. She's back with her family. Everything's all right. A lady who was an opera singer in her lifetime called and got in touch with me to tell me she's fine and back with the family. Mm. And what does Monica not know? My mother-in-law was an opera singer. Now, when she tells me, that i don't deny any of this i know it's real so i've had people who died come and say goodbye to me their spirit yeah and i and one was my mother-in-law um and i went to the nursing home after that experience happened i heard her say goodbye bernie and um i ran down to her nursing home where she was and the nurse saw me and said, oh, you've heard. I said, I know. I didn't hear. I knew. Yeah. Because I told her that my mother-in-law had come to me to say goodbye, so I knew it had happened. Yeah. So my question then is, we know from your your past life memories and your your experience in this lifetime with your wife, do you foresee that you all will travel again in future lifetimes? Or do you think your your process together is complete? Well, I think it could be either way, but I sure hope mm-hmm. we get together again. And again, <laughs> in the way of no coincidences. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, the two of us might meet going to school somewhere. Who knows? You see, when you leave your body, there is no time. Right. That was something Brian Weiss really had to teach me. Because, see, I used to have conflict with him about this. Really? I had to become convinced. (laughs) Not just reading his book, because, you know, I knew him and he's a nice guy. I said, Brian, this doesn't make sense. You know, somebody died, let's say, five years ago, and now they're back, and... Uh, you know, how can you figure these things out and all the time? And, and he said, Bernie, when you leave your body, there is no time. Yeah. And that took me a while to understand because your consciousness isn't physical. So time, it doesn't age. It is. And then I began to recall when as a kid, because I had a near-death experience when I was four years old, choking on a toy. I recall when I would tell people the story about it, I would always say, the kid on the bed. And I thought, why don't you say me? 
why do you say the kid on the bed like it wasn't you? Yeah. And it really hit home for me because it isn't me. It's just a body on the bed. And in those days, when I was four, it wasn't something you talked about or got in the news or somebody wrote a book about, you know. So I had the experience. It was real. Nobody was interested in <laughs> discussing it. Uh, yeah. Because when you find your kid has almost died, um, you know, being uh, choking to death, um, you're not interested in the fascinating thing that happened. But right. again, I think all these things made me more mystical and made me open to experience. In other words, life memories, body memories, I mean, you know how people have a heart transplant. Well, there was somebody at Yale had a heart-lung transplant. She called me up. She said, Bernie, I'm having a weird experience. Nobody here is paying attention to me. I wonder if you could come and visit me. She said, when I woke up from the operation, they said, would you like something to eat, something to drink? She said, yeah, I'll have a beer and chicken McNuggets. <laughs> she said, what? I've never had those things. Where'd that come from? Well, to make a long story short, one night she had a dream. A young man came to her and said, my heart and lungs are in you, and we're together forever. Mm. And she wrote a book about it called A Change of Heart. Her name is Yes, Christine. I've heard about that. Yeah. And, and he gave her his name, too. So that's why she knew the truth. Her friends looked up in obituaries, found his name, called the family. Yep. And she had ridden a motorcycle. She didn't know why he had died in a motorcycle accident. Oh, and the family said, oh, yeah, he loved chicken McNuggets and beer. Uh, I mean, you can't deny all those experiences. Yeah, so, there have been a lot of those documented heart memory transfer cases. I think uh, yeah. The Heart's Code by Paul Pearsall talks about right. a lot of the most astounding cases. And you see a lot cases. of those when they yeah. happen to intellectuals or doctors, they would say about the other people, oh, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. That's just a brain change. And then something happened to them. And like one father wrote, heaven is for real. When his four-year-old son, had, you know, came back and said, oh, yeah, my heart stopped. And when it stopped, I left my body. And he told him about people in his family. Like Monica said, you know, an opera singer, he met people in his family who had died before he was born. Huh. And the father couldn't deny that. Yeah. Because one of them was, he said, I met my sister. And his mother had given birth to a girl who died. So he didn't know that he'd ever had a sister. Yeah. So these are the things I always say to people, live by your experience. Don't right. let beliefs block your mind. And why I keep writing, because <laughs> it's coming from my experience. Like, uh, I do a lot of work with drawings. One of my books is uh, The Art of Healing. Yes. And again, why? Because I mentioned Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at her workshop. She said, Bodenate, draw a picture for me. I drew an outdoor scene. Me, my inner guide, mountains, trees, just a nice outdoor scene where I had gone for a walk and met my inner guide. It was a meditation. Uh -huh. First question, Bernie, what are you covering up? 
What are you talking about? It's a white piece of paper. You didn't need to use a white crayon to make snow on a mountain. Why is 11 important? Why do you ask? You drew 11 trees. And everything she asked me, I had an answer for. I mean, the covering up had more to do with my emotions. All the pain I was dealing with as a doctor that they don't train you to deal with. And suicide rate in doctors is higher than the general population. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, when Elizabeth started asking me these questions, I thought, this is amazing. I'm going to go to a hospital with a box of crayons and give it to patients to draw. And so I learned things that I didn't know Jungian therapists already knew. See? Art therapists don't know anatomy. So, and, and, you know, and they're not into psychiatry. So they're not looking at a color as having meaning or different symbols on it. Or if somebody yeah. didn't draw hands, draw hands, they're not saying, how come you can't get a grip on anything? Um, you know, mm-hmm. they're seeing it as a mistake in the drawing or you forgot something. But when you know anatomy and psychology and you see these things, it's quite something. Yeah, today I went to my chiropractor friend and his secretary is wearing a black mask. And I said to her, you know, you got to get another color. That <laughs> depresses me to see your whole face covered with black. So she said she'll make something like a smile on it. I said, that's good. But it's, again, colors have meaning. As Jung said, numbers have quantity and meaning. So it opened up a whole new world to me. And some of it was simple to say to a patient, draw yourself in the operating room. Draw yourself getting chemotherapy. Um, And for some, it was a scene of love and care. And others, it's the devil giving me poison or I'm lying there all alone with nobody caring about me. And I would say to people, don't have this or change your attitude towards it. And how do they do that? With their imagery. In other words, they picture themselves going and having treatment and doing beautifully. And that's when the wonderful thing happened. My patients became Siegel's crazy patients. (laughs) <laughs> as a term of endearment, not as a criticism. Because yeah. the other doctors realized these people are crazy. They're not having side effects. They're not having problems. So, you know, it was fun to take care of them. Yeah, And, and they he... learned from them to help other patients become crazy patients too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the goal. Yeah, so I'm. you've been in this game a long time. Um, and practicing medicine, writing about these kinds of experiences. And as you mentioned, when you were four, talking about a near-death experience was not mainstream. But I see mainstream headlines these days talking about near-death experience, talking about mind-body connection in medicine, having these types of radical remissions that are actually being studied. And I'm just curious, you know, from where you sit to see this happening to what do you attribute that, or where do you see the practice of medicine going, given all of these things that are coming out? Well, let me say, one of the things we have to change is even the word radical remission mm. or spontaneous remission. A few years ago when they had that big cancer show, um, they never talked about anything you know, where patients did better than accepted. It was expected. It was always spontaneous, or they're lucky. 
and I realize it isn't true. And one of the things, again, I always say, just like I wrote the book, read fiction if you want to know the truth. <laughs> because the authors who are writing the poems, writing the fiction, are writing about what they have experienced and observed, just as I did. Matter of fact, I have a book of poetry with our grandson called When You Realize How Perfect Everything Is. He was helping me with another book that I have called No Endings, Only Beginnings. They all came out around the same time. Um, it's helping people, to put it in a few words, learning who you are. And, and why did I get involved with one of our grandchildren? Because I realized how spiritual he was talking to him mm. and all the poetry he had written. And it was like the two of us were the same person, but he was 30 years ahead of me. <laughs> because I had to go through the pain of being a surgeon to start writing the poems and keeping a journal. And here he is doing it as a young man. Yeah. So some of us are special, are spiritual, and others are not and need tragedies to wake up and learn. And one of the great gifts we can give each other that I learned uh, from a young suicidal woman was, you're my CD. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean I'm a CD? You're my chosen dad. Mm. And she sends me cards all the time with wonderful messages. I mean, we're talking about several decades ago when she was suicidal. And I said, I love you. I'll be your father. And one of her latest cards that I keep on my desk is, Happy Father's Day from to my f bonus dad. Mm, so yeah. I got a new term now. I'm not just a CD, <laughs> I'm a BD. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's again, when you change the people, you change life. And let me say this, too, because I was watching the boy on the bed die. He couldn't breathe. His larynx was in spasm. It was one of the most painful things that has ever happened to me. Every mm. muscle in your body is sucking, trying to get air in. The pain was excruciating. And that's why it was so wonderful to leave my body. I didn't want to go back. Yeah. I knew my mother would be upset, but I chose death. Okay, my consciousness said, okay, we'll choose death. Then what happens? The boy on the bed vomits, and all the pieces come flying out. And as a four-year-old, I didn't think, oh, he had a Heimlich maneuver. But I know that is true now. My angel, who I have, I'm sure did a Heimlich maneuver on the boy's body and he started breathing again because I wasn't supposed to die at that time. No, I, I think there was too there. much work for you to do in the world yeah. for to end that early. And let me just add so people won't think I'm crazy when I say I have an angel. <clears throat> he turns out to be the man I met in my meditation. Told me his name. He was dressed rather strangely which I understand now. And I have had people, when I've been lecturing or speaking at a Christian funeral, say to me, I drew a picture for you. There was a man standing in front of you for the entire lecture. And I knew that, like talking to you, he is doing, I'm doing the talking, but he's writing the script and telling me what to say. Yeah. And then after I had spoken at a Christian funeral of a friend, a healer named Alga Worrell, um, and she and her husband have written many books, an intuitive 
when they were kids, they saw things, you know, like people in a room who weren't there, and they would say what they saw, and somebody would say, oh, yeah, that's Grandma. She died a few years ago. Um, but anyway, Alga came over to me and said, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, why do you ask that? I spoke at a Christian funeral. No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. Mm-hmm. And she described, his name is George, in total detail. And then I understood why he was dressed that way and everything else. Um, and again, I cannot deny that event and what happened and what she saw and what yeah. she said. So, yeah, I know he's there with me, and I listen and literally hear voices. I mean, I hear someone talking to me, and I always listen, and it's had a profound effect on my life. Do you think we all have a George of our own that speaks to us like that? Yeah, but you see, if if you don't quiet your mind, you're never going to hear the messages. And and that's a, a unique theme it's the same as the still pond see the ugly duckling think about getting thrown out of your house by your mother what do most people do that's that's so be that rotten i'm gonna get a gun and kill her um no he goes off quietly by himself sits on a pond and sees some swans oh boy are they beautiful And then he looks down at the water, which is still, and he realizes, oh, I'm a swan too. Boom. Yeah. His life has changed. But you see, if he's saying, oh, my rotten mother, my heart, that pond is not going to be still. His mind is in turmoil. And I've learned also from an animal intuitive friend of mine, um, Amelia Kincaid, because I thought she was nuts. See how I changed. What I mean by that is, when I first met her at an ASPCA meeting, I said, hi, how do, you, how, do you, how do you do? What are you doing? Oh, I'm an animal intuitive. I talk to animals. I thought, lady, why don't you just say I'm nuts instead of telling me you talk to animals? But to make a long story short, because I'm in some of her books now, she told me where to find lost pets in Connecticut while she was in California and Africa. And she described exactly where they were and said to me, Bernie, you know, I'm in the animal's mind. I can see through its eyes. And I went and got, these happened to be two cats, and went and picked them up um, because I knew where they were from her description. So I've realized that unique theme, quiet your mind. And then many things will be made clear to you that you were unable to see or understand before that. And so I have to ask, because this book, Three Men, Six Lives, is a window into your mind. And it, my perception would be that you are not someone that had a naturally still mind. So I'm curious if that is true. How oh, have yeah. you been able to still your mind? Well, let me, I'm glad you said that. I was going to tell you a story. In college, I received one C in four years in creative writing. (laughs) And when my first book came out, Love, Medicine, Miracles, was a number one New York Times bestseller, I wrote to Colgate University and said, raise my grade to a B, 
I'll be a summa cum laude graduate because look what I've done. I did it as a joke, you know. I thought it'd make them laugh in the office. And they wrote me and said, we can't raise your grades after you graduate. Um, And I, I felt sad for them. See, they're thinking. They're not laughing and saying, what a character, you know. And now, what was your question again? Let me get back. Yeah, I just said my perception from reading this book is that you might not have been a naturally still mind kind of guy, so maybe you have some practices. Well, well, see, that's what I meant now. In college, I was a still-minded guy. Oh, really? Well, I'm a science major, you know, physics, zoology, biochemistry. I'm going to be a doctor. Yes, I took some art courses because I loved painting using my hands. It's part of why I became a surgeon. I did not know an artist could sold paintings and could earn a living. Or I don't think I might have ever become a surgeon. But I thought, you don't want to waste your hands, all this skill. So, you know, become a surgeon. All right. So in college, I'm thinking and studying and being intellectual, you know, memorizing, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you leave college and off you go. And that's when I changed and really began to pay attention to feelings and emotions and other things and began to write differently. See, my first book, well, two things. One, we didn't have computers. I began to write lots of letters to people with cancer to help them. And again, I'm writing a letter. I'm just scribbling away. I'm not thinking about... How's the punctuation? What's it? You know, I just let it flow. Yeah. And then when they said, you can write a book, I said, I can't write. I got to see in college. I don't know how to write. So I sat down with a tape recorder and I talked like I'm talking to you for hours. And then we handed the recordings to a, what, what's the word I want? Transcriptionist uh, or... Well, uh, I can't think of the word, not prescriptionist, but somebody who, you know, had the talent of writing, an editor. Let's oh, I see. Yes, yes. Word. So somebody who would edit it and put it together in a constructive way, mm. and then it got put out as a book. Thing. Yeah. And I still often have people read what I've written, and we'll improve it, you know, and put things together so... Everybody can understand what's flying through my head. But (laughs) one thing, um, Mario Puzo, of, um, you know, who wrote, uh, what is it, um, you know, about the mafia. Oh, I don't, let me, let's see. Mario Puzo? Yeah. Puzo. Oh, there we go. Author. Okay. Sorry, I'm just Googling him. Yeah, uh, he wrote about I'll, it'll come to me because I have trouble with names. Of oh, the Sicilian, anyway. the last dawn, the Godfather. Yeah, the Godfather. Okay, yeah. he was a friend of mine. Okay. And um, he said one day, okay, I got to go write my book. And he goes into this room, and the door was open, and uh, his girlfriend was sitting with me, and we were sitting for a while, and then she went over and looked in the room and said, Mario. You're not doing a damn thing. You're not writing. Why aren't you sitting out here? He said, I'm waiting for the characters in the book to tell me what to write. When he said that, I understood 
what my problem was, you see. I'm thinking he's sitting there waiting for the characters to tell him what he should write because he hears them talking and then he writes it down. And, and, well, and another author said, he talked to his assistant and said, hey, you're a good writer too. And the kid said, I haven't written anything. Oh, the, the letter on your desk to your father. He said, that's a letter to my father. What are you talking about? He said, well, then write a letter to everyone. And when I was writing letters, I had no trouble writing. But once I started thinking, <laughs> then the block comes up. So now yeah. I'm in a trance most of my life, you know, with my mind just being taken over by my consciousness, and it just goes. And I let it go because I know it knows what I need to do and where I need to be and everything else. Yeah, and it knows exactly what all of us out here need to hear from you um, for the love, the medicine, the miracles, the hope, and all of the things. Um, and we're we're coming right up to the end of the show, Bernie. Um, so I've been joined today by Dr. Bernie Siegel. He has another, his 19th, another wonderful book out, Three Men, Six Lives, that explores uh, everything that Bernie has learned from both his current life experience and past life experiences. And I just have to ask Bernie before we go, you are someone who brings so much hope and sees things a little bit differently than perhaps the rest of us. And I'm just wondering as we wrap up today, do you have a message, you know, looking out with the wildfires burning and the coronavirus and um, lots of uh, lots of tension in the world well, today. Let me give you several messages. One is yes, because we have less than a minute left. Okay, I'm so sorry. Was why would God make a world where all this suffering goes on, all this disease? God's yeah. statement is, Bernie, a perfect world is not creation; it's a magic trick. So we're all here to live and learn. And when you live in your heart, magic happens. Act out of love. Ask your heart. What should I do? Stop thinking and listen to your heart. And how you love the world is up to you. But those, and when you love, you live a longer, healthier life. And when you have been loved, it shows up. Because a Harvard students who said, my parents loved me, one out of four had a major illness by middle age. My parents didn't love me, 98% had. And even in studies where you go home to a dog, the people who have a dog in the house, more of them are alive a year later after a heart attack than people who don't have a pet in the house. Yes. So yeah. form relationships. That's why the women survive and the men don't. I can't die till you're married and out of the house, and I can't work anymore. What's the point of living? Thank you, everyone. We hate to end it there, but this is where we got to end because it's live radio. This has been Sunny Joy on Sunny in Seattle. Three Men, Six Lives by Dr. Bernie Siegel. <laughs>